Well, as I said earlier, this week begins the, the, today begins the first day of Holy Week. And so we're going to be stepping away from the book of Micah and our study in Micah um, to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus. That's what started Holy Week. And later on this week, there will be another great tradition in the hearts of all Americans. Well, most Americans, I should say. The Masters. The Masters will kick off on April 6th. And this is the one golf tournament a year that I watch. I, I shouldn't say tournament. It's the one day on Sunday where I actually watch golf every single year. The winner will receive the coveted green jacket. Jack Nicholas has won the Masters six times. Tiger Woods won five, and Arnold Palmer won four. The Masters is, and this is coming from someone who knows nothing about golf. The, but in my eyes, the Masters seems to be the pinnacle of American golf. There are literally thousands of people everywhere. From walking from hole to hole, they set up bleachers on certain holes like Amen Corner just so that people can watch what is going on at the Masters. Joel and I, my oldest son Joel and I, got a small glimpse of this, and this last year we went to the FedEx Cup in Memphis for our first time. And there were groups of people who would follow each golfer, and we had no idea what we were doing. And so I told them, just act like everyone else is acting. But don't say what they say. Just act like they, just, just... Just act like they do. And when we got there, there just happened to be two people who were getting ready to tee off. And so we decided, you know, let, let's follow them. And we chose someone, regrettably, who went to LSU. But we followed him from nine holes, Sam Burns. And here's the funny thing about following Sam Burns. Is Joel and I didn't know Sam Burns from Adam. When we started following him, there was about 15 of us at the first hole. By the time we got to about the third hole, the crowd had grown to about 30 people. And Sam Burns was having a good day. By the next two holes, that crowd grew to about 60 people. By the time we got to the ninth hole, where Joel and I finished our day because we were tired, there was 100 people following Sam Burns. And this is what was so great about this crowd. We were all talking about Sam Burns. We were all talking about what he just did. Every single stroke. Oh, that was, that was get in the hole, right? We, we were excited. The crowd grew quiet when he's about to hit. When he, when he said something, it was really funny. The crowd began to murmur, began to whisper. Did you hear what he said? I actually twice had to go to an official and be like, what's going on? Because he hit the ball out, out of bounds, and then all of a sudden he laid his club down, and he dropped his ball again. I was like, I, I don't know what he's doing, but please explain it to me. The crowd was following him, and they were getting excited. They were getting excited about what Sam Burns might do. And just being near him, I began to root for this LSU Tiger. In Matthew 20, we have something happening that far exceeds the anticipation of the masters. 
Because in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of people are coming for the Passover. And this is what we read in verse 29 of chapter 20. And there was a great crowd following Jesus. Now, you can break up the Gospel of Matthew in a hundred different ways. You can make different outlines. You can say this was the important part, this was the important part. But what everyone agrees upon is that here in chapter 20, something changes. Because it's this point of the Gospel where Jesus no longer conceals his identity. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals a leper. And you remember what he tells him. See that you say nothing to anyone. And again in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees are conspiring to kill him, he withdrew from the crowd, but the crowd continued to follow him. And he began to heal them, but what did he say to them? He ordered them not to make himself known. He was concealing his identity. He was afraid that the people would find out who he truly was. They would begin to worship him in an unholy way. And we might wonder, and I myself always wonder, why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would he conceal his identity? If you're the king, just come out and say it so that everyone might know. But for Michael Nolting, he is much like Aragon in the Lord of the Rings. The people weren't ready for who Jesus truly was. And his timing couldn't have been more perfect. Everything that Jesus had said about himself, everything that he demonstrated, everything that he had spoken about in his mission was about to be revealed as he was going to Jerusalem. He was the Messiah of God who was going to save his people. The fullness of time is here in Matthew 20. For Jesus to reveal he is the king over his creation. But this is what I want us to see this morning. What does that mean for us? You see, everything that Jesus says, everything that he does, everything that he reveals about himself as true, he does this for a specific reason. To reveal who he is, but also to reveal to his disciples who they are called to be. Jesus is headed to the cross. And the call of every disciple of Jesus is to take up his or her cross and follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You follow. After Jesus, you murmur about what he's doing. You get excited about what he's just done, and you get excited to talk about what he's getting ready to do. 
just like Joel and I were about Sam Burns. We kept talking. We kept getting excited. What's going to happen next? As disciples of Jesus, we follow in his footsteps. And our question for us this morning is, what type of disciple are we going to be? Jesus is equivocally clear who he is. But who do we believe that he is? In chapter 21, Jesus reveals this with a picture. But here's the problem. The people following him, even his own disciples, didn't recognize Jesus for who he truly was. This crowd, who was making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover, didn't truly understand Jesus. Not because of what he said, not because of what he had done, but because they only saw Jesus for who they wanted Jesus to be. Who they thought Jesus should have been. And their hearts are about to be exposed. Their thoughts about who this king truly is, is about to be revealed. Because here's what we know. He comes into the city and they shout, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest. But these are the same people who in a week are going to cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. Do we honestly understand? Do we honestly believe that Jesus is who he revealed himself to be? Because these people didn't see him. They didn't truly see Jesus. Everything Jesus does in this passage reveals what type of king he is. And it's very important for us to see what he does. Look, at me, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now skip down to verse 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. It is interesting. What is Jesus doing? He's the king, and the king has the royal privilege of commandeering property. The king is able to say, what is yours is truly mine. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's not just saying, let me loan out, I want you to loan out your donkey to me. He's saying, what is yours is truly 
mind. Jesus is acting like a king. But notice, he's riding a donkey's colt. And I probably should have called, I saw Manette White walk in earlier. I probably should have called Manette and said, how long does it take to break in a colt? From what I read, because I don't know anything about breaking in a colt, it takes months before someone can sit on a brand new colt and ride it. But notice what takes months Jesus does immediately. Because Jesus isn't just a king of his people. Jesus is a king over the entire creation. Everything obeys the voice and the will of Jesus. Even the donkey's cult submits to its king. And there's something else for us to notice. Not only is Jesus commandeering this cult, but Jesus is also fulfilling Scripture. Matthew tells us this took place to fulfill what is spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This prophecy was about who is the king. Now, Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9. But often what happens when someone in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they're not wanting just for that one verse to come in mind, but the entire context of where that verse comes from, because context is king. And in Zechariah 9, this is what God is promising, that he will guard his house, his city, and his nation, and no oppressors will march over them. When the king comes, the Lord will remove the chariots and war horses and battle bows from Jerusalem. And he will proclaim peace on the nations because of his covenant promises to Israel. Jerusalem must rejoice for this king, gentle and peaceful, is come to rule over all nations. Jesus, in the most public way possible, at the center of life, at the center of all religion for Israel, Jesus is coming in and pronouncing his kingship over all of creation. And the people respond. Look at verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on it. And sat on them, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut off branches, palm branches, John tells us, from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd proclaim emphatically, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is taken from Psalm 118, verse 25. And it originated as a cry for help. God, save us. Hosanna, God save us. And it became a cry of praise. To praise the messianic king that he might save his people. And the people of Israel were, in the, in the time of the Gospels, publicly praising Jesus as their king. And notice, Jesus does not correct them. 
he no longer hushes the crowd and says, do not tell anyone. Jesus pronouncing, this is who I am. And notice, he is no longer walking. He's riding on this donkey. He's proceeding into this city. So not only is he showing in picture form to the Jews who he is, he's also revealing to the Romans who he is. Because in ancient Rome, a general or a king who had just conquered a foreign people would make a procession into the city. And when this general or king would come into the city, there would be a long group of people behind him. First, it was the people, the armies, that just allowed him to win the battle. Second, it was the people who had just been conquered. And this is what a general or king proceeding into Rome would do. He would walk through the people and go directly to the temple. And he would offer a sacrifice. He would first offer up his laurel wreath which was worn by Greek gods and Olympians as a sign of their victory. And he would offer that up to the gods, but then he would also make a sacrifice. And do you know who he would sacrifice? The captives. The people who had just been conquered. And if you look at your Bibles, you can see where does Jesus go as soon as he comes into the city? He goes straight into the temple. And as Bill pointed out in Sunday school last week, typically this Roman king would come and triumph over these people and he would switch out his war horse for a donkey. Because the king who had just won this battle would now proclaim peace over the land because his victory had been won. Jesus riding in a donkey is his proclamation The battle is as good as won because I'm going to the cross. I'm going to save my people. But now listen. Now listen what the people say. He entered Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? You see, here's the problem. The people, they wanted a king. They wanted a king who rode in with military power who would give them immediate relief to their troubled situations. They had been conquered by Rome. They had real struggles and real problems. And they were looking for a king who would give them peace in this problem. They wanted a king to overthrow Rome. This is who they thought the king should be. But this isn't who Jesus revealed himself to be. Their expectations of Jesus weren't connected to who Jesus actually was. They had created for themselves a picture. A picture of who and what a king looks like. But here's their problem. It wasn't Jesus. The picture that they had created in their mind of what a king looks like 
wasn't Jesus. Because his kingdom wasn't established by sacrificing the blood of others. Jesus' kingdom was going to be established with him sacrificing his own blood. His kingdom was going to be established with might and power through the cross, dying for his royal subjects who had betrayed him. His kingdom would be established when it was led to a tomb, but even death could not overcome him. Jesus was proclaiming a kingdom that wouldn't just relieve these Jews from their Roman problem. Jesus was going to save them from their sin problem. And notice in verse 11 how the people responded. This is the prophet, the revealer, the one who proclaimed the truth of God. And maybe they get it. Maybe they get, this is the prophet of God. But then their next words reveal their blindness. This is a prophet prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And we all know, Nothing good comes out of Nazareth of Galilee. Their hearts are revealed. Everything that Jesus has said, taught, and done, they still didn't see Jesus. And this is what's so fascinating. All three Gospels, so all three, the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us the story right before this triumphal entry. And this is what we find here in Matthew 20, verse 29 through 34. It's the story of these two blind men. And what does the text say? These two blind men were sitting on the roadside because this is what happened when lots of people were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, hundreds of thousands of people would be passing along this roadside, and it was the perfect time for a blind man to ask for money. And these two blind men heard that Jesus was passing by, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. These two blind men saw who Jesus was was. Do we know how? Because when people see Jesus for who he truly is, they cry out for mercy. But notice what the people do. This crowd who were murmuring about what Jesus was doing, who were getting excited about everything he was doing, what did the people do? The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. The crowd thought they had already figured Jesus out. He, no, no, no. 
he's not going to help you. We need Jesus to go to Jerusalem. We need Jesus to conquer the Roman Empire. We need Jesus to do what we need Jesus to do, not what you need Jesus to do. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus heals the two blind men. In Luke's gospel, he says, your faith has healed you. Do you see? This is the proper response. When someone sees Jesus walking by, they are to cry out, have mercy upon us, son of David. You are our true king. And we know our true king will heal us because he loves his people. And when the crowd tried to silence them, what did they do? They cry out, cried out all the more, Jesus, have mercy upon us. And here's what we need to ask ourselves. Are we more like the blind men or are we more like the crowd that's following Jesus? Do we want to use Jesus to fulfill what we think Jesus should do? Do we use him as our own weapon? Jesus, I need you to do this. Rather than seeing Jesus for who he truly is, are we a people who try to silence those who cry out for mercy? Or are we people who are on our knees saying, Mercy, mercy, Jesus, have mercy. Jesus came for the lowly and the sick, for men like these two blind men, for women and children who needed mercy. He came to save the sick and the poor. Those who have nothing. And this is who our king reveals himself to be. The king who cares about those who have nothing. A king that's not headed to the throne of Rome. He's headed to a throne of grace. He's not headed to glorify himself, but to glorify the Father. He's come to die for his people. To give his people what they truly need, not what they want. He's a king who identifies himself. Who has come to save. The people should cry out. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And if you don't see Jesus for who he truly is. The call is to repent. The call is to repent. And to cry out 
for mercy. This is what disciples of Jesus do because our king has come and he's commanding that you follow him for who he truly is. And here's what's so great about this passage. And this, this I, I took this, I'm stealing this from John Piper. Jesus is still on, quote, unquote, his donkey. There's still time to repent and to follow Jesus for who he truly is. Because when Jesus comes back, he won't be on a donkey. When our king returns, he will be on a great white horse. And he will destroy our enemy once for all. He's a king of grace. The greater son of David. He is the true prophet. The word of the Lord revealed. Who will give eternal life. Will we follow this Jesus and carry our own cross, having mercy upon those around us? Will we murmur? Will we speak about what Jesus has done for us and what excites us about what is to come with our King who will return? This is the true King the true prophet of God. He gave himself for you who didn't recognize him, but he calls you to follow after him. For this is what a good king does. He cares for his people. Let us pray.